from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. It was a busy week of planting for some, as the slow start to planting continues for others. Soil temps are in the low 30s, and not a lot of sunny days, and forecast has more rain in it. And now the White House is stepping in with a plan to boost production. And our farmers are helping both on both fronts, reducing the food cost of price of food at home and expanding production and feeding the world in need. And one Ukrainian is now on a mission to dig up farmer support. Territories that were under occupation but got freed up, they have a huge risk of their mines. And in John's world, shipping over the top. Now for the news, as planting kicks into high gear across the country, we're getting a better picture of what USDA thinks yields could be not only for the U.S. crop, but also production and grain supplies worldwide. That's as the department released its first official balance sheet for this year's harvest in the U.S. So let's start with those yield predictions and wheat forecasters calling for 46.6 bushels per acre in yield, two and a half of bushels less than what was predicted at the last Ag Outlook Forum in February, but it is up from last year. That has production 83 million bushels higher than a year ago due to better yields offsetting a decrease in harvested area. Now that said, abandonment for winter wheat is the highest since 2002 with the highest levels in Texas and Oklahoma. That was one surprise, but here was the other corn that yield coming in at 177 bushels an acre. That's down four bushels per acre from the Outlook Forum production at 14.5 billion bushels down more than 4% from last year. USDA saying that the very slow start to the planting season in the major corn producing states factored into the yield drop decision that they made in this report. And as for soybeans, they're sticking with the prediction of 51 and a half bushels an acre for soybeans, but calling for the crop to be 5% bigger than last year's. And cotton, a big market mover, after the report came out, the agency expecting abandonment to more than double this year. Production is forecast at 16.5 million bales. That's based on 12.2 million planted acres from the March Perspective Plantings report. But that harvested area, that's expected to fall 1.1 million acres to 9.1 million. And that is all due to the drought in the southwest. It also says exports are expected to fall slightly. We'll take a much deeper dive into the numbers as well as look at the world grain supply situation and the impact that those changes had coming up in our marketing roundtable. Well, April's consumer price index is still near historic highs at 8.3%, but it was slightly lower than what we saw in March. The Labor Department says on a month-to-month -month basis, prices rose three-tenths of a percent from March to April. That's the smallest increase in eight months. Experts say prices will likely remain high over the summer, but they do say that this new data does suggest the inflation peak in terms of percentage increase could be behind us. But for now, higher food and energy costs do remain. And the White House is blaming the war in Ukraine for adding fuel to the inflation fire. Well, President Biden traveling to an Illinois farm this week, announcing new actions aimed at boosting food production across the world, along with lowering food prices. And he was joined by Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, announcing a plan to increase production by increasing the number of counties eligible for double cropping insurance here in the U.S. and to costs for farmers by increasing technical assistance for technology-driven precision agriculture. And the White House also announcing doubling the funding for domestic fertilizer production from 250 million dollars to 500 million. Farmers worried about raising for, ri rising fertilizer, 
uh, cost and what are the content of the fertilizer. That's why earlier this year, the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced it would invest $250 million to boost fertilizer production. Literally on the plane out here on Air Force One, I turned to Tom and I said, Tom, double that. Make it $500 million. It's so desperately needed. We can't take chances. It's critical to get this done. Right now, many farmers are concerned what impact fertilizer prices and the late planting season will have on crop yields this year. Stone X Group creating these graphics that show just how much fertilizer prices have skyrocketed since last spring. Josh Linville with Stone X follows the fertilizer market extremely closely. He says the late planting season means the supply chain system is getting jammed up due to the expectations that many had for an early spring just a few months ago. He says the late planting season means the supply chain system is getting jammed up due to the expectations that many had for an early spring just a few months ago. Well, on top of the high fertilizer prices farmers and ranchers are facing right now, you have record high gas and diesel prices, and now there's concerns about a diesel shortage. Triple A reporting that the national average price for a gallon of regular unleaded gasoline shot up to 4.37 a gallon on Tuesday. That wipes out the record hit just in March of 4.33. Diesel prices also sending shockwaves, hitting 5.55 a gallon on Tuesday. Peter Meyer of S&P Global Commodity Insights telling us that diesel supply is short all over the world due to sanctions against Russia combined with demand bouncing back following the pandemic. So supplies at the New York Harbor, a major hub for diesel distribution, that is now at a 30-year low. But it's not a shortage of oil in the U.S. that's causing it. It's a shortage of refining capacity on the East Coast. And just weeks after FBI put agriculture on high alert about potential ransomware attacks, there's been another ransomware attack on agriculture, this time targeting Agco. The company announcing the attack occurred on May 5th. The worldwide manufacturer and distributor of ag equipment saying that it impacted some of its production facilities. Agco adds that it's still investigating the extent of the attack, but anticipates that its business operations would be adversely affected for several days and potentially longer. It says it would all depend on how quickly it's able to repair its system. All right, that's it for the news. So how could the spring planting window shape up this coming week? We'll have a check of your forecast with Matt Yurisovic next. It's time to sign up for the 2022 United Pork Americas Conference in Orlando, Florida. Register today at unitedporkamericas.com and join us September 7th through the 9th. Time now for a check of weather with Matt Yurisovic. Matt, you warned us last week, record-breaking temps across many areas of the country this week. Good news for planting progress for some, but we also saw more rain in North and South Dakota where farmers are running out of time to plant this year's crop. Yeah, time. that's right. We saw a lot of rain across uh, really the upper Midwest, the Northern Plains, and you can really see that here over the last couple of weeks, how this has changed from being extremely dry up in the Dakotas, parts of uh, Minnesota, and even down into Nebraska to now being in the blue here. We've got kind of a surplus of that moisture and very, very wet soil up there in the upper Midwest, still parts of the Mississippi River Valley abnormally wet for this time of the year. Meanwhile, still have those extreme to exceptional drought conditions from Texas, Oklahoma, even parts of Kansas, New Mexico and Wyoming all the way back to the West Colorado thrown in there as well. And then we've seen a lot of rain in the Pacific Northwest. We're going to see more of that over the northern tier as we head over the next 10 days. Here's a look at that jet stream. 
heading through this week. Now it's going to stay a little bit cooler and more unsettled in the north, and that's because the jet stream well up here. That means it's going to be very warm, even hot back in the southwest and very muggy here in the east. And you can see that we're still going to be keeping it unsettled. Dip in the jet stream coming in as we head through this coming Thursday, and that's going to bring a couple more storm systems along with it going right through the northern plains and into the upper Midwest, and that could halt planting for a couple of days. So that's something to keep an eye on, especially as we head into next weekend before things become more zonal. You're very warm and humid to the south, a little bit cooler, still staying unsettled to the north. And that's definitely something to keep an eye on. On Monday, though, humid in the south, hot in the southwest. A couple of storm systems moving eastward with some rain moving through the mid-Atlantic and northeast. A couple showers in the northern plains there, staying mild, though, in the northern plains as well. Then we've got that kind of that outbreak of some showers, a couple of storm systems. Here's the first, there's the second and third off the coast, moving eastward as we head through the middle of the week. Meanwhile, staying mild in the east, hot and humid in the south and just hot and dry back in the southwest with lots of sunshine. You can see even by Friday still dealing with hot and dry conditions there, staying humid out ahead of this cold front, which we could see some showers and thunderstorms break out across parts of the Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes as we head through Friday. Another storm system moving into the northern Rockies, bringing some higher elevation snow and some rain showers back there as well. So here's a look at the temperatures this week. You can see it very warm in the south and then as we get into the Great Lakes, places that have been very warm, back to normal, but below normal back in the north where we're dealing with all of that precipitation. And it's kind of the same thing when you look at this map above normal in the northern tier, northern plains, upper Midwest, staying dry where we really need the precip and also back to below normal there in the east. Meanwhile, temperatures next week not going very far, staying warmer in the east and the southwest, staying cooler in the northern plains and even the central uh, Rockies as well. More rain though expected as we head through next week. So that's something that we'll keep an eye on. Time back to you. Thanks, Matt. Well, the weather has caused some major disruptions in planting progress so far this year. So even with the movement this week, is the weather changing the acreage picture? And how could it change USDA's latest look at supply that we got this week? Well, Matt Bennett and Dwayne Bussey join me to answer those questions next. Your next piece of equipment is on machinerypeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on machinerypeat.com. Thanks for joining us for our marketing roundtables this weekend. We have Dwayne Bussey as well as Matt Bennett. A big USDA report came out on Thursday. Some surprises. Dwayne, I mean, typically USDA does not adjust the national corn yield in May. However, this year, USDA made a pretty large adjustment. Why do you think USDA went ahead and did that? Well, yeah, first off, it really surprised me. They dropped the yield down to 177 versus the 181 from the February outlook and the trend line yield. Uh, they did because of the late planting. And like I said, it did surprise me. They hadn't made an adjustment like that since way back in 2013 when we did have similar type delayed planting start uh, start to planting season. So it, justified or not, uh, that's the numbers we'll work with for now. Yeah, justified or not. So Matt, do you think it is justified considering we do have so much of the crop that is getting planted later than, than, than normal? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the thing is, is that I was surprised as well. Typically, you're going to use that 181 from the Outlook Forum, but you come in here this year and you get kind of a late start. I think everyone's just a bit more on edge uh, than what you would typically be, uh, given the fact that uh, 
you know, we need good production this year. There's no question. And so uh, I think the market has done everything it could to buy acres. You know, there's no doubt you run the market to 750. That's uh, you close this week uh, in this uh, camp. Market's done everything it possibly could. But if Mother Nature doesn't cooperate, uh, then all of a sudden you start pulling some acres away from uh, certain areas, uh, for instance, uh, North and South Dakota uh, into Minnesota. Now, how many acres have we maybe picked up in other places due to the fact that the markets have been so good? Uh, the late spring, I think, is definitely uh, going to be something that's going to be a bit of a roadblock there. But I think when it's all said and done, you probably lose a few acres, uh, first of all. And second of all, it's going to be really hard uh, to outdo your all-time record yield last year uh, with you getting off to such a poor start. So, yeah, I can go along with the 177. I was just surprised that they did it. Yeah, you know, you look at the I-States, Dwayne, and we, you know, very little planting progress as of the last crop progress report. So you saw very little progress there. However, this week it's opened up in a lot of places. So we're seeing more planting taking place. However, where you are, northern South Dakota, you know, you look at North Dakota. From what I understand, more rain this week. You have not done any field work. Did that change this week? No, sadly it hasn't. And I think the guys are teasing me. They got my tractor parked right outside of the office window here and it's making me jealous and I'm staring at it, hoping I can get out in it someday. But we haven't even done the tillage work to prep the ground yet for planting. From about uh, Highway 212 North in South Dakota and all the way through North Dakota, it's very similar, very little uh, planting progress done. And it has me going right on with what Matt talked about. I don't think we're gonna get all these acres in. And when you look at the S&D tables right now, you start to take one or two or three million acres off of corn, soybeans, whichever one you want to take off, it gets very tight. I mean, we're supposed to plant 3.5 million acres of corn in North Dakota. I think there could be one million acres taken off there, one million acres of prevent plant corn. So the deadline for that is it about May 25th, Dwayne. Like what type of time frame are we talking about here? Where is, I mean, it, it sounds like it is a short window right now to get this year's corn crop in. North Dakota gets a little bit more of an extension there. We'll, we'll get to about the first. And I've had several conversations with other producers that they're saying that they will push it into June this year, mostly because of the high commodity prices. And, and you have had people mention that before on the show, and rightfully so. We'll push it as far as we can. But where there's water sitting, we can't go mud the crop in. So sadly, Prevent Plant is going to be the only option for a few guys up here. Matt? As you look at the progress that was potentially made this week, do you think we can catch up? It's safe to assume maybe 25 to 30 uh, percent. You know, you were 22 last week. I think last week's weekend was fairly active uh, in some places. And so uh, I don't know that that was entirely accounted for. And so uh, whenever you get into next Monday, I could see us approaching this 50 percent level. The problem is a lot of your maps still are pretty wet whenever you get into that six to 10 day window. So are we going to catch up? I don't know. I think that it's going to be another year uh, where you're going to have a pretty decent chunk of the crop planted into late May, early June. And again, that's not conducive towards a, a new all-time record yield uh, for the second year in a row. Well, USDA also making adjustments to Ukraine crop when we look at the, the global supply and demand sheet. There are some adjustments there that were made that we really need to dig into. So we need to take a break, but we'll do that later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, the zero COVID policy in China continues to put up roadblocks for shipping, especially with containers. But there are also other changes on the horizon when it comes to shipping routes. Here's John Phipps. As I shoot this, we are just two or three days away from some truly hot spring weather, just like we've been for the last month or so. 
Meanwhile, since Jan and I have taken a few cruises, we constantly get advertisements for cruises on our screens and in our inboxes. The cruise industry is struggling to survive, so I think they are trying anything to induce COVID-shy seniors like myself to return. This offering surprised me, although it shouldn't have, cruising the Northwest Passage from Greenland to Alaska. I noticed the ships don't have any water slides, though. Explorers like Cartier, Drake, and Cook, not to mention Vikings long before them, all searched in vain for a path to circumnavigate North America by literally going over the top. With the Arctic warming two to four times faster than the rest of the world, estimates of when such routes will be regular shipping lanes keep advancing. Right now, it looks like the long-awaited transpolar shipping route, TSR, could be a real thing around 2050. There's already modest traffic along the northwest and northern and northeastern routes, but not only is that a longer transit, overlapping claims of sovereignty are slowing their use. Even though the TSR will initially have a usable window of a few weeks in September, plans are being made and put into action by shipping companies and nations. Surprisingly, China is taking the lead in order to reduce shipping time and cost to Europe. One solution shippers are considering are designated Arctic ships designed for the polar crossing and then on or offloading to conventional vessels at locations like Alaska and Greenland. In fact, one German seaport company is in the initial phase of doing so at Finnsfjord, Iceland. Canadians are pondering how to exploit the small port of Churchill, both for grain and oil shipping. The port's currently closed as 600 miles of rail to serve it are being rebuilt on the increasingly squishy muskeg terrain. Transpolar ships won't make a huge dent in the traditional routes like the Suez Canal or Cape Horn for years to come, but the embarrassing blunder by the grounded ever given last year and the updated timelines for more open and longer-lived transpolar routes look better every year. Now, all I need is about 40,000 bucks so I can see it for myself. Thanks, John. And you can see more of John's world on our YouTube page. That QR code is on your screen. All right, when we come back, Machinery Pete, he has tractor tails this week. Hey, folks, we got a special tractor tails for you today. We're in Alina, Oklahoma, and I'm here with David Shepard. And David, I understand we have a very special tractor right behind us here. Why don't you tell us about it? Uh, this was my dad's tractor. That's uh, the one that we farmed with. I grew up on for a lot of years. We farmed with it for 1951 R. 1951R. Still in its work clothes. And that's probably the way I'm going to leave it. And uh, we farmed with it for a number of years. Right. What was your dad's name? Lowell. And what do you remember about being a young guy uh, riding this tractor? Well, I started out on a D when I was nine, and I, was, I think I run it a year, and he got, when I was 10, he got the R. Okay. And he brought it to the field, and I wouldn't get on it. I was, I was scared to death of it, it was too big. Okay. I was just, and my dad, I remember my dad had to kind of scolded me a little yeah. bit to get on it. The first tractor you drove was a D? Yeah, first my first run? tractor I run with a D, just like one okay. behind you. Now, what do people say when they see you uh, pulling with this thing with dad's well, 51R and you're winning all the awards? They're, you know, they're kind of ugly. And they kind of surprise people, you know. And, uh, well, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> so, 
So far, the international boys haven't got an answer for them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Well, with the heat this week came an open window to plant across much of the country. And that means major progress may have been made with planting. But for the Northern Plains, little to no planting was made. So what impact is it having on crop production as well as fertilizer prices? Our Farm Journal Report is next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, it's been a week since USDA released its latest planting report, and it showed the slow start is plaguing producers in many major crop producing states. So what impact could that have on not only production, but fertilizer supplies and the skyrocketing prices? We explore all of that this weekend in our Farm Journal report. Across much of the Midwest, farmers finally found a window to plant. I think uh, that first couple days of May, we were wrapping up other than a few wet spots. Farm Journal's Michelle Rook traveling South Dakota this week and in the southern half of the state, planting is now underway. This was a drought area last year and I'm also concerned about what long range forecasts have been. So far, they're saying that it's not really changed. The travel to Northeast South Dakota and it's still a waiting game. Soil temps are in the low 30s and not a lot of sunny days and forecast has more rain in it so not a lot going on at all around here and then thursday severe weather struck this video from south dakota shows the derecho that blasted south dakota and minnesota hurricane force winds clocked in between 70 and 107 miles per hour in some areas producers across the area suffered a heavy dose of damage including roofs ripped off barns and grain bins crushed South Dakota isn't alone. As of last Sunday, USDA shows 22% of the corn crop had been planted across the country, the lowest start since 2013. Some of the farmers furthest behind include those in Indiana, Iowa, and Illinois. With Iowa only 14% planted, Illinois seeing just 15% of the crop planted as of last week. And as farmers across the I-State started planting this week where they could, the slow planting pace continued in other corn producing states, especially in North Dakota, where USDA says as of last Sunday, 1% of the corn crop had been planted. And this week, not much more progress was made. When you start to lay out North Dakota and parts of Northern South Dakota, like you said, into the Red River Valley through like Breckenridge, Fergus Falls, that area, it's been very limited. Uh, it's struggling. Historically high commodity prices mean North Dakota farmers are doing everything they can to plant the crop. But more rain this week served as another reminder that Mother Nature is ultimately in control. I think producers really want to wait it out and say, hey, uh, before I start to switch around some acres, we know how profitable corn is right now. And I think that's the biggest struggle right now is that even when you crunch any other realistic number, they are profitable, but not as profitable as corn. The cutoff date to plant corn in much of North Dakota is May 25th, which is only a week and a half away. There's more time for soybeans as that date is around June 10th. I think they really want to get that corn in the ground. It's just if you get this rain system that comes through, I'm not so sure after 2019, producers are really going to want to push that after they had to deal with the test weight issues, the drying issues that they had to deal with after putting corn in the ground in June. The impact on acreage is also spurring debate on the impact on final yields. We've kind of taken a record yield off the table. 
farmers who were able to plant in South Dakota remain optimistic about yields. I'm fully expecting my yields, provided we don't have a drought this summer, to be just fine. But Hanton knows if the weather cards don't fall in his favor soon, production will suffer. We're getting to where yields may start to get reduced because of late planting. And always, the earlier we get it in, the better crop we generally have. The late start to planting isn't just causing potential concerns about yield, but also the impact on inputs like fertilizer. We went through a lot of this winter and we were talking a lot about what would happen if we have an early spring and can the fertilizer market catch up and oh, what all would that mean to the fertilizer? Well, in the fact, we've ended up with the complete opposite effect of that. Now we're dealing with a late planting and now all of a sudden it's had huge effects. Josh Linville follows the fertilizer market closely for Stonex Group. He says like many other markets, the fertilizer market is based on a just in time model, which is now creating logistical chaos. The system is getting jammed up. You've got trucks that are arriving, rail cars that are arriving, barges that are arriving, expecting that warehouses are cleared out and it's not happened because it's been too cold. It's been too wet. The application has not happened out there. While Linville does think the volatility with fertilizer prices will continue, he doesn't think $2,000 per ton anhydrous ammonia next spring is a guarantee. What that doesn't take into account is it's been a poor spring. Uh, we expect that we're going to carry a lot more physical inventory into the summertime, which is going to weigh on price ideas. We are actually seeing international price ideas of anhydrous falling, which is going to weigh on North America price ideas. We're actually seeing a few things that are leaning towards prices going down. Now, all that gets thrown out the window if all of a sudden corn jumps to $9, $10 a bushel, right? It's a whole new ballgame. USDA announcing this week a plan to boost U.S. crop production while also reducing fertilizer use. And our farmers are helping both on both fronts, reducing the food cost of price of food at home and expanding production and feeding the world in need. USDA says it will start ensuring double cropping in 681 additional counties, which brings the total to 1,935. The administration is also putting $500 million toward boosting domestic fertilizer production and increasing technical assistance for the adoption of more precision ag methods that can help reduce fertilizer use. But another issue in the U.S. is diesel prices. Those hit a new record high with an average of $5.55 a gallon this week, and some fear diesel shortage may be next. The issue is not necessarily due to a shortage of oil. Instead, it's a shortage of refining capacity as the supply chain is in high demand trying to catch up from the pandemic. And that means issues finding heating oil this fall may be the next domino to hit. Now, during the president's announcement in Kankakee, Illinois this week, he noted that the Ukraine situation, that Ukraine actually has 20 million metric tons of wheat and corn in storage that the U.S. and its allies are trying to help ship out of the country. Later, we'll meet a Ukrainian who is actually traveling the U.S. working to drum up support for Ukrainian farmers who need it most. But this week, USDA did make some changes when it came to that Ukrainian crop. We will talk about that with Dwayne Bussey and Matt Bennett next. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's May 17th online auction. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. Joined again by Dwayne Bussey as well as Matt Bennett. Dwayne, before we get in the feed and, and residual use here in the U.S., we just uh, talked about some of the, the planting issues that we saw across the country again this week. Questions about how it's going to impact overall grain supplies. But as we look at world supplies, what type of adjustments were really big in this latest WASDE report? Uh, there are some big adjustments all over the place, really. First off, USA is starting to recognize the war in Ukraine, obviously, and lowering the crop there 
the expectations anyway, and really lowering what they think they're going to export. But on the other side of it, we, when you look to South America, large forecasts uh, for record crops in Brazil, uh, which we always do in South America. We kind of forecast that record crop. And then if they have weather problems, we trim them back a little bit. So actually the world stock numbers this week came in higher, sharp, higher to sharply higher than the trade was forecasting. Matt? Do you think that that could still change significantly? And where would you look for those changes to take place? Yeah, I don't think that you're going to get a whole lot of corn out of the Black Sea region, as Dwayne uh, suggested, first of all. Second of all, you look at the noon maps again, uh, as we did this show, and no doubt that it's dry in, uh, in the Safrina crop area. And so there's no question that um, uh, that crop right now is forecasted to be a mammoth, especially compared to last year when they had major uh, crop issues. But, you know, at the same time, I've got to think that that could have the tendency to come down just a little bit, first of all. Second of all, slash in demand by 15 million tons was interesting to me. I think that whenever you have cheap and uh, abundant supply of feed wheat around the world, uh, you could probably make that case. That certainly isn't the case this year. And so I'm not so sure that they're going to be correct in the assumption that this demand is going to drop uh, as strongly as what it is. So, and then the other thing is, is you, you know, you look in China, they're talking less corn acres and more soybean acres. And yes, they're uh, slashing uh, Chinese import demand. I'm not totally sure that's what's going to happen. I mean, I'm talking China uh, came out and said that here the same day that we had the USDA report. So, you know, I, I, I've got to think moving forward that your world demand is going to stay very strong, first of all. And second of all, uh, supply isn't going to be quite as abundant as what the USDA says, at least on any stocks basis uh, from my vantage point. You know, similar questions when it comes to wheat. Dwayne, as you look at theirs, we see a shift in acreage potentially in that Northern Plains area due to mother nature. I mean, do you think we attract more wheat acres, soybean acres? And at the end of the day, when you look at these adjustments that USDA made to wheat, you know, do you mm -hmm. think it's too early or not enough? Uh, no, I think it's good they made the adjustments. And I think the market's doing its job by rallying. And we got Minneapolis wheat above $13. I do have producers to the north of me in the heart of a spring wheat area saying that they're going to cut back on corn acres if we get rain this week and weekend, and then they're going to plant more spring wheat. They'll plant spring wheat until that first week of June as you get to the Canadian border. So actually, I, it's possible we could gain some spring wheat acres, but there's going to be a lot of prevent plant there as well. But yeah, very interesting world situation. Why not try to plant it you know, as much as you can? So I don't know. I'm still leaning that the corn and soybean acres are going to come in lower than anticipated. Feed and residual usage. On the U.S. side, Matt, we did see some adjustments there lower. Is that a product of demand destruction or is that another factor that's at play there that we lost some of that demand? Yeah, definitely. They're looking at the, the cost of feed uh, being a little bit of a demand destruction situation. Uh, cattle moving forward. You know, some of these cattle have been brought to market a little early and you've seen some cows slaughtered. Uh, I've got to think the cattle numbers on out into the second half of the year are going to be quite interesting, especially into the fourth quarter, first quarter next year. Uh, but I think feed and residual usage for uh, the next uh, six to, to nine months is still going to be strong enough that I, I don't know that I want to slash it uh, 300 million bushels off of what the outlook forum numbers were. I think that's a bit excessive, quite frankly. And again, uh, last year, there's a lot of cheap feed wheat that got fed uh, when corn prices rallied substantially and cheap feed wheat does not exist this year. So it changes the dynamics of that a little bit. I think that was a bit too aggressive and I don't necessarily agree with 100 million slash in exports as well, especially considering the lack of corn that's going to be coming out of the Black Sea region. So I'm not so sure that the demand is 
going to get sliced the way that it is. And if their yield comes in uh, the way that uh, they forecasted it, this 177 matching last year's, you're looking at an extremely tight carryout for this new crop situation. Thank you for joining us this weekend. We really appreciate it. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. When farmers or ranchers in the U.S. face tragedy, others in the industry are quick to help. That mentality of farmers helping farmers is also happening in Ukraine. Clinton Griffiths reports on how support is rolling in from across the globe. The images of destruction and devastation litter the Ukrainian countryside. Farms turn to battlegrounds as Russia's invasion of Ukraine stretches into another month. I was supposed to be flying out from Kyiv Borispil airport on the night of the attack at 9 a.m. with the group of Ukrainian farmers to Costa Rica. Roman had a career giving agricultural tours in Ukraine and around the world. That changed in an instant. After getting family, including his own children, to safety, he's now in the U.S., focused on raising awareness and support for his farmer friends back home. My first ever farmer who traveled with me, he's in Kherson Oblast, and I knew that he was captured by Russian military about a week ago, and I didn't hear anything from him. So he answered to me, Roman, I cannot talk long, you understand why, I'm safe, we are trying to work. But work has been difficult in places. He says agriculture infrastructure, equipment, and even fields have been targeted. Territories that were under occupation but got freed up, they have a huge risk of their mines. Landmines and munitions are everywhere. When the farmer goes into the field wearing this bulletproof vest and the helmet in the tractor, knowing that there might be a mine, but he's still going and planting. Why? Because he knows that he needs to give, to pay to land plot holders to pay this money for the rental of the land because they will also depend upon him. Global Agricultural Bin and Infrastructure Company, AGI, has employees in that region. They came to us and they said, hey, we've got an idea. With some of our customers and our employees, we can provide uh, last mile logistics, but we can't really buy medical goods. Can you guys at head office help us with that? They agreed and have since been raising money and sending medical supplies to those in need. You know, your fields are flooded and you're about to lose your barn or your house, you know, somebody comes and helps. It's just, there's no fuss about that. It's, and it's very true to what's happening on this project. While the fighting may be isolated, the impacts are global. We see farmers, some of our commercial customers, their silos are being bombed. The whole, foods, the whole food supply chain is being destroyed. Ukraine may be a major exporter. However, its future rests in the hands of those still at home. About 56% of Ukrainian uh, population, they have farmlands from one hectare to more. The many smallholder farms remain a vital part of the ag industry. For instance, the farms ranging from two to 500 acres. They supply the total volume of production, at least 30% of the crops and uh, field commodities and up to half of all the products made of animals. Here, small farmers grow 90% of potatoes, 60% of milk, and nearly half of the small grains. Roman says they will be the ones that provide food when villagers return to rebuild. It's also why he's raising money and awareness. They are actually the second field, battlefield, the farmers. 
So the first are the military, and these people, they are the second. They will be the ones to whom we will come next month and ask, give us something to eat. Food is central to sustaining life and ultimately the key to rebuilding its future. Thanks, Clinton. To learn more about what these organizations are doing, go online to the addresses on your screen. They are World to Rebuild Rural Ukraine and AGI's Step Up for Ukraine. And we'll have those links as, on our website as well at agweb.com. All right, up next, can solar farms and agriculture coexist? John Phipps joins us next. How much land will be lost? Well, the Biden administration has been clear. They are working to boost solar and wind energy across the U.S. And now more than 300 solar projects across the country have been canceled or delayed due to an investigation by the Commerce Department probing Chinese imports. But ultimately, is there more room for solar in the U.S.? That's customer support this week. From Cody Light in Gaston, Indiana, concerning farmland lost. What about all the industrial scale solar projects being built and proposed? We have not even begun to count farmland, 900 acre plus tracks, that has been or will be lost to industrial scale solar. That land we all know will never be farmed again. Want to say it will be farmed again? Show me a fully successful decommissioned project in the U.S. that is being farmed. What will the math look like in the next five to ten years with vast tracts of land being destroyed by industrial solar so a few large companies and landowners can profit huge? Cody, this is another mathematical misperception about the size of our country. There have been multiple calculations on exactly this problem. The most conservative estimate of the area needed, that is the biggest number, is 22,000 square miles or 14 million acres to provide 100% of our electricity. Now this is for 14% efficient panels, but current panels are currently over 20%, which would sharply reduce the number needed. Generating all power from only farmland would use about a percent and a half of our farmland or about 4% if it was just pure cropland. For perspective, we have 22 million acres in the CRP. My guess is less than a few percent will be on farmland for several reasons. First, the most optimistic pre uh, projection is 50% solar by 2050. Our major crop production areas are not the best place to put solar power. The southwest is by far. Installations need to be reasonably close to high voltage transmission lines and substations normally about two miles. About 20% of solar installations are residential, roofs. It is easier and cheaper to site solar arrays on non-farmland, like deserts. There is no government involvement in acquiring energy sites. It is done by agreement with landowners and energy developers, not eminent domain or government seizure. Consequently, much of the outrage felt by farmers arises from not owning the land. As for uh, ground ne uh, never being farmed again, I couldn't find an industrial farmland array that has been decommissioned. But we learned from nuclear power those expenses have to be set aside at construction. Virtually all decommissioned solar installations have been industrial rooftops and residences. Finally, while a tiny number of landowners do profit handsomely, that is a right of ownership. The area involved cannot remotely be described as vast. It's a large country. There's room for solar. Well, two popular brands are teaming up to toast to farmers. We'll tell you how next.
Well, two iconic brands are coming together to honor farmers and raise money to aid family farms. John Deere is joining forces with Anheuser-Busch to bring limited edition for the farmers cans of Bush Light across the country. The cans feature that iconic green tractor and farm scenes. They will be available starting next week through July 3rd. For each sold, Bush Light will donate $1 to Farm Rescue with up to a maximum of $100,000. Then John Deere will match Bush Light's donation. Farm Rescue helps farm and ranch families that have experienced a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. And this is actually leading to an event coming up next week that they're aimed to have the largest cornhole tournament in the world. Well, that's all the time we have this weekend for U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.